We're going to be continuing uh, to look at the book of Jonah. We have gone through the whole book um, together, and we've actually gone through the whole book, I think it was four times we read through the whole thing together in a few different translation, uh, translations, four or five times. Uh, but then we also, each week we looked at each of the four chapters individually, and now we're spending still just a little bit more time kind of meditating and contemplating uh, the book of Jonah as a whole. And, and last week, Mike did, I think, an excellent job of showing how so much of Jonah relates to the other prophets in the Old Testament. I think it's really cool and how, you know, the story of Jonah is a, a, it's a historical account. He was a real person who lived and the events happened. But his story also serves as a parable of sorts and a prophecy that correlates to other parts of Scripture. So, and originally, Mike and I were going to cover both the Old Testament and New Testament connections to Jonah in one week. But, but when we started putting the notes together, we just realized that it was going to be way too much to try to cover in one week. And if you did, uh, if you missed out on any of those previous messages and you want to catch up, those are all available online on our website. Uh, but today, I get to kind of swing the spotlight over to the New Testament and look at some of the ways that Jonah is a, a prophecy and a parable and a, a reflection looking forward towards the New Testament, towards the Messiah. We know Jonah is set in the 8th century, roughly 750 to 800 years before Jesus was born. But when we look at the life of Jesus, even so many years later, we can see a whole bunch of really cool correlations uh, and even a direct, a direct reference to Jonah by Jesus. So to start off first, uh, I want to read an excerpt from chapter 1 of Jonah. We've read through the whole thing uh, again in full, uh, all the way through enough times. I'm just going to skip around a little bit. I'm going to be reading from verses three through nine. But you know, if you're going to, if you follow along, you'll notice I, I'm skipping uh, to kind of the relevant parts. So it starts from in Jonah chapter one. Jonah got up to flee from Yahweh's presence. He found a ship going to Tarshish. He went down into it to go with them. But Yahweh threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. And the sailor said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? Jonah answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship Yahweh, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. Then, of course, after that, they eventually throw him over. And when they do that, the storm and the waves immediately calm. And that shows that Jonah's God, Yahweh, is indeed sovereign over creation. He is the creator of the sea and the land. And that was one of the big takeaways that we got from chapter 1, one of those major themes of God's sovereignty over creation that then does carry through the rest of the book. And now the first New Testament passage I want us to look at um, 
it, it's an account that occurs in all three of the synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same story in it. I'm going to be reading from Matthew, if you want to follow along, in chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to start in verse 23. Starts off, as he, he being Jesus, Jesus got into the boat. This is where they're deciding to kind of cross the sea to go to the other side, and there's going to be some stuff that they're going to do over there. So Jesus got into the boat. His disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? And he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Wow. I mean, you, you've got to see the parallels here, the connections to Jonah. We have a boat and people in the boat and this sudden violent storm that threatens to, uh, it, it says here that the ship was swamped. It's threatening to destroy them, to kill them. And Mark even uses the word great to describe the, the storm. And we talked about how great is used all throughout Jonah. And it's a different language, of course. It, Matthew is in, written in Greek. Jonah is written in Hebrew. But it's the exact same concept here that's carrying through. And then we have this guy, Jesus, asleep in the bottom of the boat. Sleeping through the storm, just like Jonah was. And then he's woken up by this panic, his panic-stricken disciples, uh, just like Jonah was woken up by the captain saying, you know, we're all going to die. you got to do something about this situation. And <laughs> the calmness of Jesus and how he was really not afraid, and he, he chided the disciples for being afraid, that is a whole topic in itself that does relate also back to the Old Testament and King David, and it shows Jesus having this, you know, his faith in God pointing to him being the perfect king. Uh, but that doesn't really relate to Jonah, so that's as far as I'm going to go on that. But it is, it is cool. What, what he does next, what happens next after that is what's truly amazing. So after he says, you know, he chides them for being afraid, he simply speaks, and everything is calm. But when Jonah said to the sailors on his ship, I worship Yahweh, who created the sea and the land. And then Jonah's instructions to throw him over saved their lives. They realized that Jonah's God, this Yahweh God, truly was the creator God, sovereign over his creation. And when Jesus displays his command over the waves and the storm, he's being identified there as the creator and, and the ruler of his creation. Now, I'm, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament for a moment because this concept of, of God's sovereignty over creation is all over the Psalms, especially. 
So Psalms, I'm just, you can write it down. Uh, I'm just going to read it. Psalms 89.9 says, You rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. Specific reference to God's control over nature and specifically to the raging sea. And I found at least half a dozen other passages like this just in Psalms. And then to go a step even further, I think there's a significance in the method by which Jesus calmed the storm. Because right, no one had to get thrown overboard. Uh, he didn't do something like striking the water with a staff or something like that. No sacrifices were made. And notice he didn't even, he didn't pray to God like Jesus sometimes does. He spoke. And Matthew and Luke both say, they use the word, he rebuked the storm. And Mark actually provides the quote that he said. He, he says that Jesus said, silence, be still. Some translations will say, peace, be still. Either way, it's, it's a command. And the command literally means, be muzzled. <laughs> so he's speaking the command directly to the forces of nature, and that command was obeyed. His words were obeyed. And I think it's significant that Jesus used his voice to speak into his creation. Because how did, how did God create the world in the first place? We learned back in Genesis at the very beginning. He spoke. He spoke, and it was. And again, look at another psalm. This is Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4. The voice of Yahweh is above the waters. The God of glory thunders Yahweh above the vast water, the voice of Yahweh in power, the voice of Yahweh in splendor. I could go off on a whole tangent about the voice of God and how cool the wording is in, in the Psalms, but for now I just <laughs> want to suffice it to say I think this parallel between the message and the themes of chapter 1 of, of Jonah and the story of Jesus calming the storm there's a very clear and obvious parallel. Of course, it's an implied parallel because Jesus didn't then say, after he calmed the storm, he wasn't like, oh yeah, guys, remember the story of Jonah and how that all played out? Yeah, I was there too. Uh, that, that was me. He didn't say that. He just kind of let them sit in their amazement. But then chapter 2 of Jonah brings us to the explicit reference that Jesus uh, made to Jonah. And it reveals that there's another layer of prophecy to Jonah. It wasn't just about Israel and how they were going to be overthrown by Assyria. Uh, if you're still in Matthew, go ahead and turn forward a few, a few chapters to chapter 12. We're going to spend a little bit of time in, in Matthew 12. We're going to be starting in verse 38, but you should understand a little bit of the events leading up to what's happening in verse 38. So chapter 12 starts off with Jesus making a declaration that he's Lord over the Sabbath. And we don't have time to get into that again, uh, other than that's an incredibly bold statement of authority that Jesus is making. And then after that, he heals someone, he casts out demons, and he then calls out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So, of course, they're already ticked off. And that's where verse 38 picks up. 
Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus has been making some bold claims ever since he came on the scene about who he is. He's God's chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's come to bring God's kingdom. So the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. Basically, they want him to prove it. If you are who you say you are, prove it to us. Show us a sign. And they don't really get what they're asking for because Jesus basically says, uh, no, you are all horrible people and you're not going to get a sign uh, other than the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he doesn't even leave it at that. He explains what he means by that. Sometimes Jesus' answers can be a little bit cryptic, uh, but in this case he explains exactly what he means by the sign of Jonah. In, in chapter 2 of Jonah, he's been thrown into the depths He's sinking into the ocean. His death is literally surrounding him. And the belly of a fish becomes his grave. Jesus is predicting his own death and his burial. And even uses similar language as Jonah did in his prayer. Do you notice that? He said when Jesus is talking about it, he says that he'll go into the heart of the earth. And that's very similar to the language that Jonah was using in his prayer in chapter 2. But we know that Jonah's grave didn't end up being a permanent grave. By God's power, after three days and three nights, Jonah's grave, the fish, literally returned him to the land of the living. And Jesus knew that his, his grave, no grave, would hold him forever, and that after three days, he would, by God's power, emerge, resurrected, and triumphant. So I have to say, you know, Jesus was, as humbly as Jesus did come, I think his resurrection was a little bit more glorious than Jonah's, because the angels kind of rolled away the tomb, and there was no spitting or vomiting involved. But by the words of Jesus himself, the story of Jonah is a prophecy a prophetic parable, like Mike was mentioning last week, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How cool is that? So we've seen so far there's a direct parallel between chapters 1 and Jesus, chapter 2 and Jesus. So what about chapter 3? What happens in chapter 3 of Jonah? Jonah finally goes to Nineveh. He preaches, remember, the the five-word sermon. And the wicked, violent people of Nineveh repent. Even the king steps off his throne, sits fasting in sackcloth on a heap of ashes, and demands that everyone and the animals all do the same. Now let's keep reading what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Picking back up in in chapter 12, verse 41, he says, The men of Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. That's pretty cool. He's actually making references to two different Old Testament stories, starting with Jonah. He's continuing his thought uh, on Jonah, comparing himself to Jonah, and saying that the men of Nineveh, that great and horrible city, will stand up and condemn this generation, the people that he's talking to, specifically the, the Pharisees and the Jews of that generation. Why are they going to condemn them? Because they repented at a five-word sermon from a bratty prophet with a bad attitude, and Jesus, the actual Messiah, a perfect prophet, has come in power, doing miracles, showing love, and preaching repentance. Something, someone far, far greater than Jonah ever was, (laughs) and yet the Jews will kill him for it, which is what we would have expected Nineveh to do to Jonah, which kind of brings that whole irony and the satire, tone of satire full circle. Very ironic. And as for that second reference that Jesus made, uh, the other story that he references, do you remember the story of when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon? We talked about this back in 1 Kings chapter 10. She wanted to see for herself if the rumors that she had heard were actually true. And she saw He saw that those rumors, not only were they not exaggerated, they didn't even live up to the truth of the reality of how awesome Solomon's kingdom and his wisdom was. And then because of that, she, an Ethiopian queen, praised Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I am greater than Solomon ever was. And yet your response to me is nowhere near as glorifying to God as that Ethiopian queen was to her response to Solomon. So we have the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba. Two examples of non-Jews behaving in a way that really puts the Pharisees to shame. And he's saying, Jesus is saying this to the face of the, the Jewish religious elite who prided themselves in being better than everyone else. And of course, non-Jews behaving in a way that glorifies God while the Jews are not behaving in a way that glorifies God is another theme that we see all throughout Jonah. And ultimately, we can see from both chapter 3 of Jonah, with the Ninevites repenting, and with this interaction with Jesus, there's kind of a twofold teaching. Firstly, that there is nobody so horrible or wicked or different from you who God does not love and whose God's spirit cannot transform. And there's nothing that you have done that God cannot forgive. And on the flip side, you can go through all the motions of being quote-unquote good person and religious and totally miss when God is standing right in front of you, in the Pharisee's case, or just totally resist who God is in Jonah's case. And that brings us to chapter 4 of Jonah. We've covered the connections with the first three chapters. 
What do we do with the, the fourth? And I, I'm not giving you, you know, a completely comprehensive a list of every single connection there is to the New Testament. This is kind of a, a broad strokes overview. And that's probably especially a good thing when it comes to chapter four, because four is, is it's such an odd chapter of the Bible in general, let alone Jonah. But it's loaded with so much symbolism, as we, we saw last week, with all the symbolism that relates to the Old Testament. Uh, so we could be all here, here all day discussing it. But Mike already covered a lot of the, the symbolism. So I'm going to focus on what I think is the main thematic element of chapter 4 of, of the actual narrative, of what the story is saying. So the story is telling us that Jonah resented God. He resented God's mercy, specifically. And he knew that. He knew who God was at the beginning. He ran from it in the middle and at the end, he resents it and would rather die than bear witness to it. I've, we've been over this already, I know. So how does, it, how does it relate to Jesus? Jesus was himself the ultimate manifestation of God's mercy. There, there were, when he came, and there still are, two basic responses that you can have towards Jesus once you've encountered it, either acceptance or rejection. The Pharisees looked at God's mercy directly in the face. And they said, oh, I, I don't like that. We need to kill that. His own people, the ones who God called to be his partners in bringing grace and peace and forgiveness and love to the world, those people turned on him with bitterness and resentment. Remember how Mike said that the person of Jonah can be seen as representing the whole people of Israel. Jonah was chosen by God to partner with him in bringing grace and peace and forgiveness to Nineveh. But when that mercy came, he turned on it with bitterness and resentment. So the question I have for all of you today, and myself. How will you respond to God's mercy? How have I responded to God's mercy? We all know that we, we need it for ourselves. If you, if you don't know that, I'm telling you now, <laughs> you need it. And we can see it in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 24. Not a single one of us, all of us have sinned. No one can live up to God's standard. Any more than the Ninevites did. Any more than Jonah did. Or the Pharisees did. All have sinned. All are indebted to God beyond hope of repair. And yet he gave us hope. And this is a... a theme that we've been tracking since Genesis and the garden creation from the very beginning. God has given us free justification by his grace. Jesus bought us out of our debt. And we know why he did it. Just John 3.16, we, we sang this this morning. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone 
who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. John says that God loved the world, the whole world. He doesn't say, for God so loved Israel. He certainly didn't say, for God so loved America, the world. He loves people of every size and shape and color, from every nook and cranny of the globe, so much that he would give his one and only son for us. He wants you to be a part of his kingdom, not in a city that will be destroyed. If you haven't yet experienced God's mercy in your life, I want to tell you it's time to humble yourself in your heart, like the Ninevites did, to acknowledge your sin. And thankfully, you don't need to you know, put on the sackcloth and sit in ashes and fast. Jesus made that much more simple for us. We see that in Romans 10, 9, another great passage. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, the, the journey of following Jesus certainly doesn't end there, and it's not always easy, but it's absolutely the most important decision that you could ever make in your whole life. If you haven't taken that first step, it's not like there's a, a magic prayer it's as simple as, as confess and believe, but if you have any questions about that or you want to talk about it further with someone, please do talk to me or Mike or many other people in this room uh, would, would love to talk to you about it. But if, like, like most of you, I think, are already on that journey at some point, whether you started it uh, relatively recently or you're, you've been well on your way, I still have the same question for you. How will you respond? How are you responding to God's mercy? Do you act like you're grateful? Have you actually repented of the sin in your life, or are you just kind of ignoring it and taking advantage of God's grace? When God's mercy is standing right in front of you, do you see it? And do you realize that God has made you a partner in bringing grace and peace and love to the whole world? Are you being used by God but kicking and screaming to your own downfall, wallowing in self-righteous self-pity? I know I've been there at times, but God is doing amazing, redemptive work all around. So are you going to join him and give of yourself to be a part of that work? Or are you going to watch from a distance while whining about your comfort? Jonah, I think, is the best example of the worst response you can have to God's mercy. Maybe the Pharisees are, are close second or compete. But Jesus is God's ultimate expression of mercy. And he demands a response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you again for the blessing of being able to gather, for the blessing of, of music. Thank you for our music team willing to lead us in songs and, and praise and work through the logistics and 
I just I thank you for the blessing of that. I thank you for the blessing of your word that we have so freely and so uh, easily attainable at our fingertips. I think it's so easy to take for granted. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to study such a rich book like the book of Jonah. I pray that your spirit would continue to speak to us, through us, and transform our lives. Lord, I thank you for the incredible gift of salvation that you provided through Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lord, I praise you for who you are. We apologize for when we fail to represent you well or when we we may be used by you in spite of our spite for you. Lord, let us embrace you. Teach us to forgive like you forgive and show love like you show love and to embrace your mercy on our knees and jumping for joy and with tears of gladness and with the heart of broken repentance. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.